This is a Rooster Teeth production. December 20th, 1995. American Airlines Flight 965, a Boeing 757 with 163 people on board, is on final approach to Cali, Colombia after departing two hours late from Miami, Florida. The crew is frustrated by the delay and by the fact they will need to fly in the dark, in a valley, past the airport, then turn around in order to land on runway one in a northerly direction. While making their descent to Cali, air traffic control offers them the choice to land at runway 19, which would be more direct and allow them to land to the south. The crew gladly accepts, deploys their speed brakes, and begins figuring out their new approach. Air traffic control's radar is not functional, so it is up to the crew to tell air traffic control when they pass waypoint to Lua. Due to the last minute change, the crew doesn't know where Tolua is, so they begin trying to figure it out. While consulting their charts, the crew is shocked to hear the ground proximity warning alarm go off. 12 seconds later, the aircraft collides with a mountain east of Cali. What happened to cause American 965 to get so lost they hit a mountain? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Gus. Uh, we're here uh, with another episode. Uh, I... I I'm I'm sorry to say I don't think this is the first time we've had an episode where a plane hits a mountain. Uh, I know it isn't. It's uh, it's happened a few times. It's always shocking when it happens. You think mountains are so big, how could it happen? Well, we're gonna we're gonna get into it. Before we do that, I always want to remind you to give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod. Uh, we post pictures, stuff that maybe we can't quite adequately convey in an audio format. You can check it out there. Also, we have a really cool thing coming out in about a week. We have Black Box Down animated. Yeah, it helps. Uh, it's not the whole episodes. It's just like the like really critical points, a couple minutes from some episodes that really highlight what was going on and gives you a different perspective on the, the situation. Yeah, so I mean, it's super cool. I mean, it, it helps you visualize it in a different way and just see things. Uh, and they're super quick and easy to consume. It's just uh, youtube.com slash blackboxdown. Go give us a subscribe and listen and watch it and then share it with your friends uh, because that would really help us out. And we're super happy with how these turned out. We think they're awesome. They're great. Yeah. Amazing, amazing animation team that helped bring it to life in a way that is cooler than anything Gus or I could have done on our own. I'm sorry to agree, but yeah, there you are. You are absolutely correct. <laughs> yeah. We'll also have a link in our uh, link tree. Link good old link show notes. Okay. So back to the business at hand, American Airlines flight 965. Like I said, it was a passenger flight from Miami to Alfonso Bonilla, Aragon International Airport in Cali, Colombia. Mm -hmm. uh, this is back December 20th, 1995. Captain of this flight was 57 years old with about 13,000 total flight hours. First officer was 39 years old with about 5,800 total hours. Aircraft was fairly new. It was a four-year-old Boeing 757 with 13,782 flight hours and 4,922 cycles. So uh, experienced pilots, new plane. Well, not yeah. brand new, but pretty new. Well, I think that's like the best. <laughs> it's not like a brand new plane that yeah. like could have an issue. It's like, there's a good plane. It's yeah, tried it's, and true. Yeah, you know, it's reliable. You know, it's working fine. Oh, and I, sh I should mention there were, of course, also six flight attendants and 155 passengers on board. Before the flight took off from Miami, uh, this airplane had flown from Ecuador to Miami, uh, landed at about 2.38 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. The flight crew on that flight reported no maintenance issues, nothing wrong with the plane, like we said. It's still relatively new, but, you know, it's been it's been broken in a little bit. You know, you know that everything's working. The captain and the first officer for flight 965 arrived at the Miami airport about an hour before the departure time. They were in good spirits. And, you know, that's normal. Nothing out of the ordinary there. The flight was initially delayed about 34 minutes because they were waiting for the arrival of connecting passengers and baggage. Uh, at the time, there was a, a big storm up in the northeast part of the United mm -hmm. States. You know, like we said, December 20th. So they went ahead and waited a little bit for passengers who were connecting. 
there were a lot of people from Colombia on this flight who were returning home for the holidays, you know, to see family and stuff. Like I said, December 20th. So they ended up leaving the gate uh, at about 5.14 p.m. Uh, however, once they left the gate, they were delayed another hour and 21 minutes due to congestion and airport traffic, busy holiday season, lots of traffic going on. Finally, they departed from Miami at about 6.25 p.m. And I was, I was shocked about this next part. I've never been to Colombia. The flight from Miami to Colombia, the time and route is only three hours and 12 minutes. Huh. It's like, you see, I, I look at Colombia on the map. I look at South America and I think, oh, that's so far. You're like, oh no, it's a three hour flight from Miami. That's like from Austin flying to Los Angeles. Yeah. I guess it's because Miami's already so far down there. So I guess so. But yeah, so anyway, it was uh, supposed to be a real quick flight. But like I said, uh, they ended up getting delayed. They ended up taking off around 6.25 p.m. Uh, the flight crew climbed to flight level 370 and, you know, totally uneventful as it flew down to Colombian airspace. At 9.03 p.m., the crew told Bogota Center uh, that they would cross the Butal waypoint in four minutes. When they did, the flight was cleared to the Tulua VOR. And we, we've talked about these before. These are just like waypoints that show up in their navigation system. So that's why you, these aren't like actual places. You can't like go to <laughs> Google Maps and type Tulua or Boodle. Like it's not going to show up. It's, uh, it's yeah. all programmed in the flight navigation computers. So the Tulua VOR is located about 34 nautical miles north of the airport in Cali. So it's close, right? 34 miles, not far yeah. off. At 9.10 p.m., the crew contacted American Airlines System Operation Control to get weather information for Cali. And they're told weather was clear. Visibility was greater than 10 kilometers with scattered clouds. And at 9.26, the flight was cleared to descend to flight level 200. So they're, you know, they're making their descent, getting ready to land. So at 9.34 p.m., the crew contacted Cali Approach, and the controller asked for the distance DME from Cali. And the DME is just distance measuring equipment. Uh-huh. So you know, basically just trying to figure out where they are exactly. And the captain responded saying, DME is 6.3. The controller then cleared the flight to the Cali VOR to descend and maintain 15,000 feet and to report back when they were at the Tulua VOR, along with giving the current altimeter settings. Uh, and of course, the captain read back all the instructions with no issue. And the uh-huh. captain told the first officer he had... Put direct Cali for you in there. And he's, he was referring to the flight management system, the computer we talked about. Uh-huh. At 9.36, the approach controller told the crew that the wind was calm and asked if they could do an approach on runway 19. Uh, like I said earlier, the way they were initially supposed to land, they were supposed to land on runway 1. And we've talked about this before. Runways are numbered according to the direction you land, or the direction, you, the direction aircraft are going to go, uh-huh. uh, like on a compass. So 1 would be almost pretty much straight north. So they were gonna, since they were coming from the north, that means they were going to have to fly past the airport, turn around, and then fly north to land on one. But, you know, the air traffic controller says, hey, if you want, you can approach and land on one nine. And one nine is almost directly south, so they can just fly straight in. They don't have to do that pass it or yeah. anything. Yeah, they were delayed. Uh, they're trying to make up time. The crew was a little concerned about whether or not they were going to have enough rest for their flights tomorrow. Because, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, there's mandated amount of rest and everything. So, you know, the, the crew's happy that, like, oh, you know, if we can land at 1-9 instead of 1, that's going to save us time. So, of course, you know, the captain responds saying, yeah, absolutely. But they're going to need a lower altitude right away because, you know, now they need, they don't have as much time. They got to uh-huh. get down a lot more quickly. So the approach controller then said, Roger, clear to VOR DME approach, runway 1-9-er, Razo number one arrival, report to Lua VOR. So there's a lot going on here. And the captain reads back these instructions, but he did not include the Tulua portion. The controller then repeated the Tulua instruction and the captain confirmed the instruction. So what he's telling him here is, you know, okay, you guys can come on in, you know, approach for runway 19, take the Razo number one path and report when you get to the Tulua VOR. And initially, like I said, the captain skipped the Tulua part, the controller said it again, and the captain confirmed it. So 
skipped exactly in what way? Like, as in he, he skipped? Didn't, he didn't read it back. Okay. Because normally what happens, air traffic control reads your instructions, the pilots hear it, and then they repeat it to confirm that they heard everything correctly. Uh, so that's why the air traffic controller tells them again, report to Lua VOR, and you know, then the, the captain repeats it. Gotcha. Okay. A minute later, the crew asked if they could go directly to Razo and then do the Razo arrival. And Razo is the next waypoint. So after Tolua, they would get to Razo. So now they're like, can we just skip the reporting the Tolua VOR and just go straight to Razo? The controller responded with affirmative, take the Razo 1 and runway 19er, the wind is calm. The captain read this back correctly and the controller said to report Tolua 21 miles, 5,000 feet, and the captain read this back correctly. So... Wait, what am I? What are they doing? There's, yeah, there's a little bit. There, this is confusing, and this is the crux of what's good, what's going wrong here. Razo is the next waypoint after Tolua, and uh-huh. I, I I don't want to to spoil too much of what's coming up ahead. Okay, but you know because they switched to runway one nine instead of one, they're having to like reprogram their flight management because it's a different route now. They're having to change things around a bit, so. They don't know necessarily. And like I said, these aren't locations on a map. They're not cities. They can just look out and see. So they're trying to scramble, trying to figure out where everything is so that they can get back on. They get on this new course to land on runway 19 instead of one. Okay. That's the crux of it. We're going to dig into it a little more here in a bit because this is, this is where things start going wrong. You are mm-hmm. correct to be yeah. confused here, Chris. <laughs> so the airplane passes that Tolua waypoint. And then the airplane begins to turn left of the cleared course and flew on an easterly heading for about one minute. And like I said, the airport in Cali is to their south, but the airplane begins turning to the east and they don't really notice it. And it's, it's turning like the auto navigation is the Correct. doing Correct. Uh-oh. So then the airplane turned right while still on descent. Two minutes later at 9.39, the Morse code letters for VC were recorded from the navigation radio in the CVR. And if you remember, some of these waypoints give out Morse code signals that can be picked up uh, by planes. It's like an an old holdover and uh, fallback safety. It like lets Uh, you know you're coming towards it? Right. So a few seconds later, after that, the Morse code letters similar to ULQ were recorded. And ULQ is the abbreviation for the Tulua VOR. I know this is confusing, Uh but if you hear Morse code for ULQ, that means Tulua. And that's the one they're trying to get to? That's the one they're trying to find. The ATC, air traffic control, keeps asking them about it. The yeah. pilots are like, can we just skip it? Can we just go straight on? But, you know, the air traffic control keeps asking, you know, let me know when you're at Tolua. But, mm-hmm. yeah, so yeah, if they're getting Morse code for ULQ, that should be a good sign. The captain then contacted the approach controller and asked if they were supposed to go to Tolua and then do the Razo to runway 19. And at first, you know, done the recording, you can't understand. I, I can't understand what the controller said. It was unintelligible. But then he said... They can use runway 19er and asked what the altitude and distance from Cali was. Again, remember at the beginning, I said the radar wasn't working at the Cali airport. So that's why the air traffic controller is having to ask him, let me know Mm -hmm. where you are. Let me know what your altitude is. Let me know what your speed is. So the captain says, okay, we're at 37 DME at 10,000. The controller responded saying to report 5,000 and final to runway 19er. Right after this, the cockpit voice recorder picked up the captain saying, is that... Okay, there's some expletives here. I'm going to, I'll, I'll beat myself out. Uh-huh. The captain says, it's that bleep to Lua and I'm not getting for some reason. See, I can't get it. Okay, now no. To Lua's bleep up. And then the captain said, but I can input it in the box if you want it. The first officer replied saying, I don't want to Lua. Let's just get to the extended center line of, uh, then the captain said, 
which is Razo, uh, meaning that the Razo point is the extended center line. And of course, the center line is the runway. It's what they should be lining up on. So they're, they can't find Tulua and they're like, let's just get on the Razo. It's like the, that sky lane that we've talked about before. Like, let's just get on the Razo, which will take them in on a center line straight to runway 19. Uh-huh. Then the captain said, why don't you just go direct Razo then, all right? The first officer replied saying, okay. And the captain said, I'm going to put that over you. And the first officer replied saying, let's get some altimeters. We're out of 10 now. So, you know, like I, like I mentioned earlier, they had to reset their flight computer. The, the first officer's flying the plane and the captain's messing with inputting their, their course mm-hmm. and their waypoints. So that's what, he, that's what he means when he says, I'm going to put that over you. Like he's just, he's, he's entering into the flight computer. Okay. Is the captain mad? He's mad, but is he he's, mad? He's, at- <laughs> he's mad at the situation. I think okay. uh, he's flown to Cali a few times. I, I don't remember off the top of my head. I want to say he's been to Cali like six times in the last month. It's, it's an approach he knows. And I think he's probably mad that he can't find Tolua. He doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, they had their plan. They knew what they were doing. And then they decided to accept this new runway. And it kind of changed their plan. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this thought in aviation that, you should never let the plane fly anywhere that you haven't already flo- flown in your mind. Like you, your mind should always be five minutes ahead of what the plane's doing. And that's what they were doing. They were thinking of runway one. Then when they accepted runway one nine, then they weren't ready for that. But isn't it's, is it that uncommon for the runway to get swapped? Uh, I mean, it's not, it, it, it's not uncommon. It's just, that's not what they were expecting. They were already worried about the time. It's dark. Mm-hmm. They're in a valley. ATC doesn't have radar. You know, it's just like all these. Yeah. Other, there's not like we've learned. It's never one thing. There's yeah. all these little things that are just like adding up, creating this frustration. You can tell. I mean, the captain's cursing. We rarely see that in cockpit voice recorders. Uh, <laughs> like, he's just like casually dropping, uh, <laughs> dropping curse words and just ups, upset in general about the situation. Uh, he's not, you know, he's not mad at the first officer. He's not mad at air traffic control. He's just mad that they can't find Tolua and he just wants to get on the ground, right? They're late. He just wants to land and, you know, go rest. Yeah. So at 941, Cali Approach requested the flight's altitude. The crew replied saying they were at 9,000 feet and they were asked for their distance, but the flight crew did not respond. 15 seconds later, the cockpit voice recorder recorded the mechanical voice and sounds of the ground proximity warning system and a sound similar to the autopilot disconnect warning. The captain said, pull up, baby and added full power, and they raised the nose of the airplane. They had extended spoilers during the descent, but they did not retract them. The stick shaker warning started going off, and the nose was lowered slightly, stopping the warning. Then the stick shaker starts again. The cockpit voice recorder stopped recording at 9.41 and 28 seconds. The airplane struck trees at about 8,900 feet on the east side of El Deluvio, which is a, a mountain about 35 miles northeast of Cali, at a heading of 223 degrees in a nose up wings level uh, attitude. And they barely hit it. I'm going to stress how close they were here in just a minute. Mm -hmm. It was so close. The airplane continued over a ridge near the summit and impacted the west side of the mountain and caught fire. So it's like they were so close to clearing it. They clipped the east side and the plane ended up coming to rest on the west side of the mountain. Oh, like, they almost cleared it. They were so close. Like, they hit it, the trees at the top of the mountain? Right, exactly. Oh, my. Oh, if the trees were just shorter. <laughs> if the trees were shorter or if they had retracted their spoilers. Mm. 
It would have given it. it it's specu- we're going to deal in that speculation in a bit, but yeah, they were they almost had it. So search and rescue was notified of the missing flight at 9:50, uh, and the initial sighting of the crash was made by helicopter at 6:30 a.m. Uh, December 21st. Out of everyone on board, they actually did find five passengers alive. Oh, one of them later died in the hospital. So it, a, four, a total of four people ended up surviving this. This was deemed an unsurvivable crash. Wow. And uh, still some people survived. I want to say that the passengers who did survive, they were seated uh, within two rows of each other. Like they were in a very small concentrated portion of the plane. There was one spot that somehow mm-hmm. miracle, a miracle they survived. Yeah, they were uh, over the wings, kind of near where a lot of the structural supports are that mm-hmm. hold the wings and the fuselage together. It's speculated that maybe that extra support provided extra cushion from the impact where they were and allowed them to survive when nobody else did. Yeah, I mean, I bet they would argue otherwise that it was unsurvivable. Oh, yeah. Uh, one other thing I want, I want to stress here, think about how awful this is. They crashed at 941 at night and uh-huh. the helicopter didn't find them till 630 in the morning. Oh, it's, oh no, it's one of those. Right. They spent all night out there. They spent almost nine hours before anyone found them, much less was able to get to them. Oh my God. It's like that, was that earlier one we did where it was um, in Japan where they hit the mountain and they, yeah. there were people, at least these people were still alive when they got found. Yeah. Uh, that might be why, like I said, five people initially survived. One of them died in the hospital. It could be why uh, he passed away. If I remember right, it was a, uh, a young boy who uh, survived but uh, passed away. He was uh, he was in a tree. He had been ejected from the plane and was uh, uh, like hanging in a tree. Oh Not my like God. like his body was over a branch uh, yeah. most of the night. Yeah, it's crazy. I've seen interviews with his father and his sister who were two of the other survivors. Oh, which is absolutely uh, crazy to think about. So the investigation was carried out by the Special Administrative Unit of the Civil Aeronautics of the Republic of Colombia. Based on the evidence, the investigation team determined that the captain and first officer committed a series of operational errors that led to the accident. The CVR contained the final 30 minutes of the flight. Again, we've talked about this many times. This is no longer the case. It used to be cockpit voice recorders only got the final 30 minutes. And a lot of times it wasn't enough. In this case, it included most of the incident, but it did not include details of the approach briefing into Cali. And investigators were unable to determine whether or how detailed an approach briefing took place before the beginning of the recorded information. So they don't know whether or not the crew briefed on their approach or what that sounded like, or Mm -hmm. if it even happened because they only have 30 minutes of CVR. So we can't talk about that. However, that being said, investigators were able to identify a series of errors that initiated with the flight crew's acceptance of the controller's offer to land on runway 19 rather than the filed approach to runway uh, 01. Uh, They found that the ILS approach to runway 1 was entered into the airplane's flight management system. As a result of the decision to accept a straight-in approach to runway 19, the flight crew needed to accomplish the following actions expeditiously. So these are the things they needed to do very quickly once they accepted this new runway. So they would need to locate and remove from its binder and prominently position the chart for the approach to runway 19, review the appropriate chart for relevant information such as radio frequencies, headings, altitudes, distances, and missed approach procedures, Select and enter data from the airplane's flight management system computers regarding the new approach. Compare information on the VOR DME runway 19 approach chart with approach information displayed from the FMS data. Verify selected radio frequencies, airplane headings, and FMS entered data were correct. Recalculate airspeeds, altitudes, configurations, and other airplane control factors for selected points on approach. 
hasten the descent of the airplane because of the shorter distance available to the end of the new runway, and monitor the course and descent of the airplane while maintaining communications with air traffic control. So you see, yeah. as soon as they accepted 1-9 instead of 1, there is a lot of stuff to get through here. Yeah. Like, it's, and even physical things like finding a binder and find, you know, locating mm-hmm. things mm-hmm. in it and like controlling, you know, all of these other things. It's, it becomes overload because it's not what they're prepared for. It's like what I talked about earlier. Pilots always say, mentally, you want to be five minutes ahead of the plane, five minutes ahead yeah. of what you're doing. And when all of this happened, they were just reset to zero and they had to catch up. Not only catch up, they had to get ahead again. Yeah. When, when they decided to change, how far from the airport were they? Um, they were close. They had, I think they had just passed. We said Tulua was 34 miles north of the airport and they had passed Tulua at this point. They didn't know it. So they were within 30 miles of the airport at this point. Oh, wow. That's like a minute. That's really quick, especially when you consider uh, at this point, I don't have the exact speed in front of me, that I believe the plane was going close to 300 miles, just under 300 miles an hour. So it's going to be really quick. You're going to pass those uh, 30 miles. Mm. So obviously, there's a lot that they have to get done. There's a lot going on they're going to have to take care of here. So the evidence of the hurried nature of the tasks performed and the inadequate review of critical information between the time of the flight crew's acceptance of the offer to land on runway 19 and the flights crossing the initial approach fix to Lua indicates insufficient time was available to fully or effectively carry out these actions. So even though they accepted this new runway, they, they should not have. There was not enough time. Mm-hmm. Like they could not have possibly done all of this in time to get down onto runway 19. Because uh, remember on top of all of that, like, well, I guess I didn't mention it. They need to, descend (laughs) they need to you know have the airplane under control and get it onto the ground safely so as a result of all this several necessary steps were performed improperly or not at all and the flight crew failed to recognize that the airplane was heading towards terrain until just before impact therefore aeronautica civil believes that the flight crew actions caused the accident like we said relatively new plane proper working order nothing malfunctioned on the plane it's just the flight crew their actions led to led to this tragedy and then, so why did they go the wrong direction? Uh, we're we're oh, going to get to that. <laughs> no, no, I know you're asking that. It's funny. I paused there and I sighed because I was like, should I get to that right now? There's, there's a lot to get through here still. I know it sounds like we're wrapping up. We're not. There is, there is a lot to dig in here into exactly what happened. And yeah, we're going to cover why did they go the wrong direction? Like I mentioned earlier, the airplane started turning to the east when the airport was to the south. Do you, do you, do you have a, any speculation as to that? They input the wrong uh, waypoint. Man, you nailed it, Chris. That it? That's absolutely it. Well, you spo- spoiler, but yeah, we're <laughs> gonna, we're we're gonna get to how that happened uh, here in just a bit. But yeah, you're right. That's why the plane on its own started turning left. Mm. Quick life hack for you: skip the trip to the post office, dodge all that wild holiday traffic, and save a bunch of money with Stamps.com. Stamps.com lets you compare rates, print labels, and access exclusive discounts on UPS and USPS services all year long. It just makes sense. Whether you're selling online or running an office or some side hustle, Stamps.com can save you so much time, money, and stress during the holidays since you can access all the post office and UPS shipping services you need without taking the trip. And you get discounts up to 40% off USPS and 76% off UPS rates. I love the convenience of being able to just print postage here at my own home printer and apply it to, you know, letters that I need to send out. Then I don't need to even take the letter. I don't even go to the post office. I just print my own stamp put it on my letter and then just leave it at my uh, mailbox and the mail delivery person comes and takes it. It's super easy. Uh, I can't overstate how convenient it actually is. 
So save time and money this holiday season with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code BLACKBOXDOWN for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. There's no long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page, and enter code BLACKBOXDOWN. Saving money is sweet, and honey is even sweeter. No, 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 I know what you're thinking. Not bee barf honey. Honey, you know, the free shopping tool that scours the internet for promo codes and applies the best one it finds to your cart. Honey sports over 300,000 stores online. Uh, here's how it works. Imagine you're shopping on one of your favorite sites. Well, when you go to the checkout, the honey button drops down. All you have to do is click apply coupons. Sit back, relax, and wait as honey searches for coupons it can find for that site. If honey finds a working coupon, you'll watch the prices drop. Just last night, I was buying some baskets online. Don't I don't want to get into it. I was buying some baskets online, forgot about honey, uh, and it dropped down and saved me eight bucks during my checkout. I didn't have to do anything. It just, uh, honey was like, hey, you want to save eight bucks? Yeah, I'd like eight bucks. I can go buy a cheeseburger or something. Uh, if you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out on free savings. It's literally free, installs in a few seconds, and by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. I'd never recommend something I don't use. Get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash blackboxdown. That's joinhoney.com slash blackboxdown. Look, I know you all listen to shows other than Black Box Down. Admit it. You know, I promise I won't be offended. In fact, I'm so okay with it, I'll even recommend another podcast. If you're looking for an entertaining and informative new show to add to your rotation, you should definitely check out The Jordan Harbinger Show. Uh, it's not just any old podcast. Jordan has an undeniable talent for diving deep into the minds of fascinating people and getting them to share never-before-heard stories. You'll hear from athletes, authors, scientists, mobsters, spies, hostage negotiators. The list goes on and on. It seems unbelievable, but <laughs> they're all there. Trust me. Uh, here recently had uh, an episode with Anderson Cooper, which I thought was really interesting, and uh, an episode with a North Korean defector named Yeonmi Park uh, talking about her escape from North Korea. It's super interesting. I think that's a two-part episode, actually. Jordan Harbinger is smart, funny, easy to listen to. You'll be pressed to find an episode without excellent conversation, a few laughs, and actionable advice that can directly improve your life. You can't go wrong with adding the Jordan Harbinger show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for the Jordan Harbinger show. That's H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. So looking at the evidence, Aeronautica Seville thinks that there's either of two reasons that could account for the flight crew's persistence in attempting to land rather than discontinuing the approach. These include the failure to adequately consider the time required to perform the steps needed to execute the approach and the reluctance of decision makers in general to alter a decision once it's been made. So they didn't consider the time. Then once they made the decision, they didn't want to change their mind again, you know? Yeah. That's, that's human nature, I guess. Mm -hmm. Sunk cost, kind of like, yeah, we're going to do it. Yeah, we already, we already said we're going to do it. We're going to do it. The cockpit voice recorder indicates that the captain gave the only consideration in reference for the time available after accepting the offer to land on runway 19. So he said yes, and then it wasn't until after he said yes, he's like, wait a minute, can we actually do that? <laughs> oh. He asked the first officer, we have time to pull the chart out. Then there was the sound of the pages turning. Like I said, they have to pull out a binder and flip through it. Despite this comment, there is no evidence that either pilot acknowledged the little time that was available to perform the preliminary tasks, such as verifying their position, uh, that formed the basis for the approach or to execute the approach. Once they began to prepare for the approach to runway 19, there's no evidence the flight crew revisited the decision. So once they made their decision to accept the offer to land on runway 19, the flight crew displayed poor situational awareness with regards to such critical factors as location of nav aids and fixes, proximity of terrain, and flight path. When the sound of rustling pages were heard on the cockpit voice recorder, the flight crew attempted to both review the approach and determine the airplane's present and predicted position in reference to critical points on the approach. So, you know, they're looking at what they're supposed to do, and then they start trying to figure out where are they exactly. Their inability to effectively do both tasks is evidenced when shortly after trying to find the new approach chart, the first officer asked, where are we? 
And there was a short discussion afterwards about their position relative to the Tulua VOR, yeah, which is something you don't want to hear the pilots asking, uh-huh. right? You don't, where are we? Yeah, especially in the dark. Yeah, and like I said, it's dark. They're in a valley. There's not like a bunch of lights they can, you know, follow on the ground. Two minutes before the impact, there was another conversation where the first officer mentioned turning back to Tulua, but the captain said, no, we press on to Tulua, then said, let's go to Cali. First of all, we got bleep up here, didn't we? <laughs> to which the first officer replied with, yeah. Like we got messed up is essentially like, where, exactly. where are we? Where are we? We're confused. Yeah. Yeah. The captain established the flight path that initially led to the deficiency in situational awareness by misinterpreting the Cali approach controllers cleared to proceed to Cali. When he was cleared direct to Cali, report to Lua, he changed the flight management system to go direct to the Cali VOR and removed all the other waypoints, including to Lua. You kept asking, like, you know, how did they get lost? What happened? Well, when mm-hmm. things changed, the captain cleared the flight computer. Oh, he just cleared it entirely. Right, because he's like, oh, we're just going to go direct to the Cali VOR. Let's clear all the other waypoints and just put Cali in. But, like we said, he was still supposed to fly over to Lua and report when he crossed it, but since he cleared it out of the computer, he didn't know anymore. Oh, no. So then, when you clear it, what does the plane do when there's, like, no waypoint well, to go? It's going to just continue. It's going to maintain Okay. what it's doing. But, you know, then he starts trying to put in the Cali VOR. So he clears it, but then he starts trying to enter new, new directions. But because of that, clearing Tulua's gone. And they don't, there's no evidence that they, either of them realized they had deleted Tulua uh, from the display. And that, that's why they didn't know when they crossed Tulua. And that's why they didn't inform the controller. Ugh. Okay, now for, now for the meat of it. This is what you've been asking about. <laughs> on top of all of this that's going on, the flight crew did not realize they also selected the wrong non-directional beacon. They intended to select Razo, but instead they selected Romeo. Because remember, we keep talking about Razo was the next one they were supposed to get mm-hmm. to. They were like, let's just skip to Lua. Let's just go to Razo. So when the captain, like I said, we said, he cleared the flight management computer and was like, all right, let's just, you know, go to Razo and get into Cali. What he did was, so the way it works is, from what I understand, again, I'm not a pilot. I don't I've never used one of these computers. He hit R on his computer. And the way it normally works is when he hits R, the waypoint closest to him should pop up. And he assumed Razo would be the closest one. And then, you know, the second one in the list is the one second furthest away. So he selected R and 12 beacons showed up with the R identifier. And he just chose the first beacon on the list, assuming it's the closest one. Oh my God. So wait, were they labeled? No, he just typed R and it's waiting for the pilot to input the next letter. It just says R and like a blank underscore for you to enter the next one. Uh He just hit R, enter, assuming that it would be the closest one. Oh, no. Oh, my God. It, but instead, Razo wasn't. It was Romeo that popped up first in the list, and he didn't know. So he just hit R, enter, instead of typing out Razo the entire way. Because Razo oh. isn't even available to select as R from the flight management. You, for Razo, you have to type its full name. He didn't know that. What do you mean you have to type? Why, why, why is that the case? And also, how did he know? Oh, my God. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just one of those quirks. I mean, you're supposed to type it out and look at it and verify he didn't. So when he selected Romeo, it was to the east. That's why the plane started turning east. Uh, If I remember right, Romeo is over at Bogota, which is on the outside of the valley on the other side of the mountains. That's why they crossed the mountains and then hit the mountains on the east side because that's when they turned back towards Cali and they didn't realize that they had crossed over the mountains. Mm, That just seems like... 
I, I mean, you, you do that kind of stuff sometimes when you're like searching for stuff or you type it in, you type in the first letter oh, and it auto completes to something or, or you're like typing in an address and you hit enter and it takes you, but like on a plane. Yeah. In the dark by mountains. And in fact, it's actually at the time, I don't know if it still is. It was American airlines policy required flight crew members to verify the coordinates and obtain approval from the other pilot before executing just to make sure it was correct. And this is the pilot that did this? Correct. It was the captain. Captain? Yeah. Again, they were probably stressed. They were trying to get on the ground. The, the letter R is ultimately what put them on a collision course with the mountains, which is a crazy thing to think about. So that was, that was the big mystery. Why did it turn east? They hit R and we ended up going to Romeo, which was at Bogota, not at Cali. They needed to type Razo. And so that's the whole time they thought they were going in one direction and they were turned and they were headed. That's, that's what it was. Mm-hmm. They flew eastbound. They still had enough altitude. They went over the mountains. Then when they turned back westbound, they were, they were still descending. That's why they hit the mountains heading back towards the west over them. But they didn't realize that they were even over them. So when they turned around, what were they? They were like, oh, let's just go back and start over. Is that what? Well, they're, they're entering, you know, the points into the flight management system. Uh-huh. Uh, and I think eventually they realized like, oh, let's, you know, that's when they give up. They're like, that's when they were saying, let's just go direct to Cali. Forget this. And then they go, they wouldn't put Cali in. And that's when the airplane starts turning again back towards Cali. Okay. And so they're turning around, but they don't realize they flew over a mountain. Correct. And they don't realize that the plane's banking. It's easy. I guess it's dark. You really have no horizon. You can see. They're distracted. They're upset. You know, the captain's flipping through binders. It just sounds so terrifying. Yeah, they had no idea. Until the ground proximity warning sounds, they had no idea. And then, you know, they hit them out in 12 seconds after that. Oh. So we're going to get the findings here for this incident. The pilots were trained and properly certified to conduct the flight. Neither was experiencing behavioral or psychological impairment at the time of the accident. American Airlines provided training and flying in South America that provided flight crews with adequate information regarding the hazards unique to operating there. And like I said, the captain has even flown to Cali quite often. The flight crew expressed concern about possible delays and accepted an offer to expedite their approach to Cali. The flight crew had insufficient time to prepare for the approach to runway 19 before beginning the approach. The flight crew failed to discontinue the approach despite their confusion regarding elements of the approach and numerous cues indicating uh, the inadvisability of continuing the approach. The flight crew was not informed or aware of the fact that the R identifier that appeared on the approach, which was Razo, did not correspond to the R identifier, Romeo, that they entered and executed as an FMS command. One of the pilots had selected a direct course to the Romeo NDB, believing that it was the Razo NDB, and upon executing the selection in the FMS, permitted a turn of the airplane towards Romeo without having verified it was the correct selection, without having first obtained approval of the other pilot, contrary to American Airlines procedures. The incorrect FMS entry led to the airplane departing the inbound course to Cali and turning it towards the city of Bogota. The subsequent turn to intercept the extended centerline of runway 19 led to the turn toward high terrain. This is what we talked about. And that's when, remember I mentioned that they said, let's just do mm-hmm. line up, you know, centerline runway 19. That's when it starts turning back. Uh, and that's when they hit the mountain. Uh. The, the, the descent was continuous from flight level 230 until the crash. Neither pilot recognized that the speed brakes were extended during the ground proximity warning system escape maneuver due to the lack of clues available to alert them about the extended condition. But they should have known that. They're the ones who extended the speed brakes to try to get down. Yeah. And uh, the Cali approach controller followed applicable ICAO and Colombian air traffic control rules and did not contribute to the cause of the accident. The what? So the controller. They're saying basically air traffic control, it wasn't their fault. They 
followed procedure. They did what they should have done. Uh, this is entirely on the flight crew. This is the second episode that we did that was like all fi- flight crew. Yeah. They, it, it, well, I mean, a lot of them are like that. You know, sure, we all worry about like, is the plane airworthy? Is there some mechanical issue? And sometimes there are. But mm-hmm. the procedures for maintenance, if followed correctly, are normally so solid that you should never encounter a mechanical or electrical problem. I'm going to say most of our incidents are probably flight crew related. It's probably flight crew made the wrong choice or made several wrong choices that all compound on top of each other. Well, this was like nothing was wrong mechanically, you know? Yeah, absolutely nothing. It was That's what, that's what I meant. It's like... Yeah, they uh, just just what uh, how they respond to the situation. Yeah. Or, yeah, I mean, they're just stressed out. <sighs> so, you know, there's a, a few probable causes here that Aeronautica Seville determines were, the, you know, that contributed to this. They are the flight crew's failure to adequately plan and execute the approach to runway 19 at the destination airport and their inadequate use of automation, failure of the flight crew to discontinue the approach into Cali despite numerous cues alerting them to the inadvisability of continuing this approach, the lack of situational awareness of the flight crew regarding vertical navigation, proximity to terrain, and the relative location of critical radio aids, failure of the flight crew to revert to basic radio navigation at the time when the FMS-assisted navigation became confusing and demanded an excessive workload in a critical phase of the flight. So just yeah, not, not good all around. So those were the probable causes. There's a few contributing causes that they also list as well, which were the flight crew's ongoing efforts to expedite their approach and landing in order to avoid potential delays, the flight crew's execution of the ground proximity warning system escape maneuver while the speed brakes remained deployed, FMS logic that dropped all intermediate fixes from the displays in the event of execution of a direct routing, and FMS-generated navigational information that used a different naming convention from that published in navigational charts. Again, that's that whole R, Romeo, Razo debacle. Yeah, yeah. So in try, in this investigation, you know, they go ahead and they try to recreate the situation in simulators and they try to determine whether or not retracting the speed brake would have allowed them to clear the, the, the top of the mountains. Uh-huh. Like we said, they were super close. And there's no definitive answer to that. They can't say with 100% certainty. But the overwhelming thought is if within two seconds of hearing the ground proximity warning system, if they had retracted the speed brakes that they would have probably gained an extra 150 feet of altitude, which would that have would most have likely it. been enough to get them over the mountain. So they, they could right? say it's strong. Yeah, it strongly seems like if they had retracted the speed brake, they would have made it, but they cannot say definitively. It was that close. I mean, I can't stress that enough. It was so close. So of course, there's some recommendations that come out uh, as a result of this. To develop and implement standards for the portrayal of terminal environment information on FMS, EFIS displays that match as closely as possible the portrayal of that information on approach charts, this really just helps them figure out where they are and what beacons are selecting. Evaluate all FMS-equipped aircraft and, where necessary, require manufacturers to modify the FMS logic to retain those fixes between the airplane's position and the one the airplane is proceeding towards following the execution of a command to the FMS to proceed directly to a fix. So this will also help them avoid a situation like this where they hit R and end up turning off to the east. Mm-hmm. Require airlines to provide pilots through CRM and flight training with the tools to recognize when the FMC becomes an obstacle to the proper conduct of the flight and evaluate correctly when to discontinue the use of the FMC and revert to basic radio navigation. So just like at some point, you got to give up on the computer and just fly the plane. Just fly the plane, yeah. Mm -hmm. And and when they selected the wrong thing, did it not like come up somewhere like ba-doop, ba-doop. yeah the display in front of them you know which picture like what it, it it's not actually radar but it looks like kind of like a radar it's got the plane in the middle and it shows yeah. like 
the line in front of it where it's going. It had a line, you know, heading towards Cali. And when they selected Romeo, that line suddenly turns dotted and curves to the left. They just didn't look at it. They just didn't look at it. They just didn't notice because, you know, they were so preoccupied with everything else. Hmm. So uh, require that all approach and navigation charts used in aviation graphically portray the presence of terrain that are located near airports or flight paths. So that seems smart. Just yeah. <laughs> put terrain on the charts. You know, why not? That w- they would better illustrate the fact and remind them that they're in a valley here. Require pilots operating FMS-equipped aircraft to have open and easily accessible navigation charts applicable to each phase of the flight before each phase is reached. Just make it easier to find these charts. That way they're not flipping through the binder. And evaluate the dynamic and operational effects of the automatically stowing the speed brakes when high power is commanded and determine the desirability of incorporating on existing airplanes automatic speed brake retraction that would operate during wind shear and GPWS escape maneuvers or other situations demanding maximum thrust and climb capability. Like... Don't rely, I guess at this point, maybe automate retracting those speed brakes so that the pilots don't forget. Hmm, yeah. And then get all the extra climb that they need. Yeah. Last uh, episode we did, even though it was the crew's fault, remember, like you, like you mentioned, there were no recommendations. This time, even though it is, you know, the flight crew's fault, there are still recommendations to try to prevent this kind of thing from happening again. Yeah. Well, but those are just things that could improve the plane and make navigation easier, right? I mean, it's and like everything's safer, safer. Yeah. But it's still like nothing, nothing was wrong with the plane inherently. There were just things. Correct. That, yeah. So uh, in the aftermath of all of this, scavengers, you know, up, went to the crash site. They actually took the engine thrust reversers, the cockpit avionics and other components from the crash using Colombian military and private helicopters to go to and from the crash site. Many of these stolen components actually reappeared in the black market in greater Miami. And as a result of this, the airline published a 14-page list stating all of the parts missing from the crashed aircraft, including the serial numbers, to try to discourage people from illegally acquiring these unapproved parts on the black market. Man. I bet you never thought about that, right? Yeah, yeah. They're like, hey, I got some of that plane. Mm-hmm. Hey, yeah, like a white van comes up to you in the parking lot like, hey, you want to buy part of a plane? <laughs> Got a Boeing 757 that needs some avionics? Come check out what I got over here. <laughs> it's a weird, that's crazy. Yeah, I don't, that's, that's, that's weird to me. In 1997, U.S. District Judge Stanley Marcus ruled that the pilots had committed willful misconduct and the ruling applied to American Airlines, which represented the dead pilots. The judge's ruling was subsequently reversed in June 1999 by the U.S. Court of Appeals in Atlanta, which also overturned the jury verdict and declared that the judge in this case was wrong in issuing a finding of fault with the pilots a role which should have been reserved for the jury only. American Airlines settled numerous lawsuits brought against it by the families of the victim of the accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, American Airlines filed a third-party complaint lawsuit for contribution against Jepson and Honeywell, which made the navigation computer database and failed to include the coordinates of Razo under the identifier R. Oh. So like this is what you asked about. Like, why wasn't it there? American Airlines sued the people who made the computer <laughs> asking why oh. wasn't it there? <laughs> Everyone's mad at each other. Yeah, uh, I mean, how does this happen? Uh, The case actually went to trial at the United States District Court for the Southern District of Florida in Miami. At the trial, American Airlines admitted it bore some legal responsibility for the accident. Honeywell and Jepson each contended that they had no legal responsibility for the accident. In June of 2000, the jury found that Jepson was 30% at fault for the crash. Honeywell was at 10% at fault. And American Airlines was 60% at fault. So it took them five years to figure all this out in court. That's more than I would have. 30% is which one? Uh, Jepson, They're, uh, they made the navigation computer database. And then 10% was what? Honeywell. They also worked on it. Okay. They're like the, the, 
the contractors who make the, these uh, avionics and these flight okay, computers. Yeah, yeah. So it's like 40% navigation, 60% the pilots. American Airlines. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's a, that's a long trial. It's weird to hear uh, responsibility divvied up like that. Yeah, it's weird. It's like a percentage. Yeah. I guess but, it's for like yeah, determining monetary, payouts. Like if yeah. Exactly. An enhanced ground proximity warning system that could have prevented this accident was introduced the next year in 1996. Nowadays, planes have these enhanced ground proximity warning systems, which are much more advanced, and they, they could have averted, uh, avoided this. These new ones, as you could probably guess, they integrate GPS data a lot more in mm. order to predict the flight path five miles ahead. So now, now the plane can predict with a lot more accuracy what's, what's happening five miles ahead of it and can uh, alert crews earlier. Yeah. So yeah, if this made you nervous about being on a plane that's going to hit a mountain, don't worry. We have enhanced ground proximity warning systems now to avoid this kind of thing ever since uh, 1996. Okay, good. Yeah. And since 2002, aircraft capable of carrying more than six passengers have been required to have advanced terrain awareness warning systems. So again, even more safety, even more uh, systems to alert uh, Mm -hmm. crew. As of August 2021, American Airlines continues to operate the Miami to Cali route. They renumbered it. It's American Airlines Flight 921. These days, it's operated by a Boeing 737 uh, aircraft. And this was actually the first U.S.-owned 757 accident and is currently the deadliest aviation accident to occur in Colombia. Oh, wow. How, how many people were on the plane? There were 163 people total, counting the crew and the passengers. Okay, and, and only four survived, so 159 Correct. died. Yes. This was also the deadliest air disaster involving a U.S. carrier since the bombing of Pan Am Flight uh, 103 in 1988. It's been passed since then. We're just talking about up to that time. Yeah. But yeah, terrible tragedy brought to you by the letter R. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I've, been waiting the whole, I've been waiting this whole episode to say that. It was worth it. <laughs> it was so... <laughs> oh my God. Uh, oh. But that's it. That's American Airlines uh, Flight 965. Uh, a plane that got lost in the dark in a valley and ended up barely clipping the top of a mountain. That's awful. I, I can't imagine being those people on the plane. Yeah. Entirely avoidable, but hopefully, you know, a lot's been learned from it and aviation is now much safer as a result. Uh, I want to remind you, give us a follow on social media if you can, at BlackBoxDownPod. We also distribute the podcast on all kinds of platforms, including YouTube. You can check out our YouTube channel, BlackBoxDown. Uh, you can get the podcast there as well. Yeah, definitely go subscribe on YouTube right now. Yes, do it. All right, well, that's it. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back again next week with another episode. Bye. Bye.